Hello, and welcome to a very special webcast that is part of a series I am leading on diversity, equity, and inclusivity with CME Outfitters. I'd like to welcome you to today's educational activity titled Foundational Principles of Cultural Humility and Safety in Healthcare Delivery. Today's, uh, today's program is supported by an educational grant from CareSource. I'm Dr. Monica Peek, and I'm the Ellen H. Block Professor of Health Justice in the Department of Medicine and the Associate Director of the Chicago Center for Diabetes Translation Research. I'm also the Director of Research at the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at the University of Chicago. I am super delighted today to be joined by my distinguished colleagues, Dr. Charles Vega and Dr. Monica Vela. Charles and Monica, can you introduce yourselves for the audience today? Okay, well, hello, and uh, thank you very much for the kind introduction, Dr. Pete. Great to be here. I'm Dr. Chuck Vega. I'm a family medicine uh, physician at the University of California at Irvine, where I serve as Assistant Dean for Culture and Community Education, and I'm also Director of UCI's Signature uh, Program in Medical Education for the Latino Community. Hello, and thank you, Dr. Peek, and wonderful to work with you, Dr. Vega. My name is Monica Vela. I'm an internist. I'm a professor of medicine in the Department of Medical Education, as well as the director of the Hispanic Center of Excellence at the University of Illinois in Chicago. I'm also an associate editor for JAMA Network Open. So we are in for a treat today. I have done sessions before with uh, Charles and Monica, so we're going to sort of use first names because uh, this is a familiar and comfortable space. And they are such wonderful people, so knowledgeable about the content area. And every time I'm with them, I learn so much. So I'm really honored to be sharing this space with you today um, and with the distinguished colleagues. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, let me start by reviewing our first learning objective for our program today, which is to outline the impact of both cultural humility and to reduce implicit bias on our patient experience. And I'm going to begin by introducing the concepts of bias and cultural humility to the audience, just to level set so we're all in the same place. I think it's really important to understand language so that we have a common linguistic understanding of really important concepts. So first, we'll talk about explicit and implicit bias. So first, there's explicit bias. That's bias that we're conscious of, that we're aware of. These are our conscious thoughts and emotions towards specific groups of people. Um, and usually because we're talking about bias, it's the, the prejudice, the discrimination, and it includes things like hate speech. And then there's the implicit bias, things that we are uh, not conscious of. They live sort of right at the subconscious level. Um, and they still reflect our attitudes and beliefs we just may not be fully aware of them. And if you ask people, they'll be like, no, no. But deep down, they're still present in our bodies and they're still shaping our attitudes and our behaviors, our judgment of people and our feelings. It's our, what's happening in our gut. Um, um, most frequently, it's our first reaction. And um, those are equally important because even though we may not consciously be aware of them, they still impact deeply how we feel and more importantly, how we behave. So now that we have a better understanding of explicit and implicit bias, I wanna just talk about some examples um, of how that may manifest in clinical practice. Um, and so Charles, I'm gonna start with you. Um, can you talk about um, any examples from your practice? Right. Well, unfortunately, both types of bias, explicit and implicit, are, are too common in practice. And so I've seen explicit bias. Um, I've, I've seen directly um, uh, some of our healthcare professionals talking in a nursing station about uh, not giving opioids to a, a black patient. This is in the emergency department where we know uh, looking at uh, data from uh, research, um, as well as objective data from uh, clinical scenarios that black patients are less likely to receive opioid medications for severe pain than white patients. And it was comments really directly like, well, these people do have a higher rate of addiction. And, and so I really had to like step out of my box because I was actually working with another patient and I had to come over and say, listen, that kind of conversation has no place here, and we need to talk about it, and we need to have a larger conversation about this. Um, but for now, you know, I'm going to work with my patient. You know, let's keep that conversation away and, and talk to you, and I talk to the attending physician in charge of that case. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's obvious and explicit. Uh, but uh, but in another case, you know, I we all have our own implicit biases, and we have to own them. And so um, I could be rolling through my, my clinic, very busy in a safety net clinic, 
uh, in Central Orange County. Um, 80% of my patients prefer Spanish. So I'll just, as a new patient, name, say like Edward Cortez. And so I'm going to walk in there. Hola, mi amor, Vega. Prefiero hablar en español o inglés. And uh, the patient kind of looks at me sheepishly and says, uh, I speak Tagalog. And, and I'm like, oh, it's, and this is, and I always tell our students, because it's, it's tough to, you know, practice cultural sensitivity. We, we can't be the masters of all cultures, but you try not to make the same mistake twice. That's what I always say. Um, and I will admit, I've made that mistake more than once, maybe three times and or four times. And it's, it's always like, yeah, okay, uh, let's take a step back. Let's slow down a little bit. And usually by doing so, I find that I can, um, I can, I, one, I can reconnect with a patient, but, but two, it, it helps me avoid those mistakes in the first place. Cause that, that's where your, your bias really can, can run free is when you're not thinking as you're practicing. Yeah. Yes. We're using our shortcuts and not our, our long brain. Um, thank you for those examples, um, both from other people where you've had to be the, what I like to refer to as the positive busybody <laughs> <laughs> and our own sort of self-reflection. Like we all are quality improvements in work. We're always trying to improve ourselves. Um, Monica, do you have any examples that you want to share? Sure. And and I love the examples that you shared, Charles. I think we also need to think about what the patient is experiencing, even as they enter um, the hospital or the clinic, and what they've experienced before they've even come to us, right? So I uh, visited a community um, hospital just recently where 70% of the patients speak Spanish here in Chicago. And as I was standing in the lobby waiting for the person I was to meet with, a number of patients came up to the front desk and asked for directions in Spanish. There was no, no one at the front desk who spoke a word of Spanish, and just they just stared blankly back at the patients. And so I started directing the patients while I was there. <laughs> but I thought, why, why is this happening? Um, you know, this hospital has been here for decades. We should be really attuned to the needs of, of patients who come from this community. Moving forward, it, it reminded me of my own time in a community practice where I was told by our um, director that patients with Medicaid insurance would be immediate, would automatically be double booked into every um, clinic space, whereas patients mm -hmm. with private insurance would receive their own clinical time space. And, and I pushed back and said, you know, why would we ever do that? It, it doesn't make any sense. And they responded that, you know, those people are less likely to show up or show up on time. And so we don't want to lose the time slot. Right. And I thought, you know what? I would be less likely to show up if my doctor was also rushed and not able to pay attention. And if they're heightened, if, if they were experiencing heightened biases because they've been placed in a setting where they are set up to do so. And so I, I like to think about all the ways that our patients experience these biases before they even come to us and why they might be feeling the way they're feeling and maybe not being as trusting of us as we might want them to be before we even say hello. Beautiful examples in so many ways, all the, the, all the examples that the two of you gave. And I particularly like that last one because it shows how we introduce structural racism or structural inequities into um, the patient provider relationship by, you know, forcing two people to share the same slot. Um, and so that, you know, invariably two people are going to show up at the same time. And so the, like you said, the provider is going to be rushed and stressed and trying to figure out how to manage. And so you have simultaneously this churn of, you know, people trying to not, you know, uh, people who are not getting, you know, the same quality care and then Absolutely. other people whose visits are longer and full of different kinds of energy and getting uh, more comprehensive services merely based on the, their insurance, um, in part, I'm sure, because of the lower reimbursement rate of Medicaid right. and so many other factors that have nothing to do with the people themselves. Um, so, yeah, um, as Kamara Jones reminds us, you know, racism is multi-level and all these 
systems of oppression that are working together um, to uh, really harm people um, and their health. So I want to introduce some concepts of cultural humility, cultural awareness, um, and cultural sensitivity to the audience. And these are ones that are going to sort of be walking with us uh, throughout the rest of the conversation. Um, and so cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity are two dimensions of this new construct that we call cultural humility. So uh, cultural awareness is the recognizing and acknowledging, respecting, and valuing other cultures and cultural attitudes. So sort of saying, yes, um, here's my culture, here's a Western culture, a Western way of doing things, and here is um, someone from a different culture who's coming into my clinic, and I recognize that that may be different, and we're going to try and perhaps accommodate that family's needs to the best of the, uh, the ability that we can. Now, that's different than cultural sensitivity, which brings us a, a sort of the next step, sort of pushes us, um, because it moves beyond just sort of recognizing and accepting that these differences occur and that we may value them. But what it does is it forces us to uh, shift our paradigms and to say that me and my culture and my paradigm, my way of thinking is equal to that culture and their way of thinking. And this one over here and that one over there. And that there's so many people in this world who have valid and equal ways of seeing the world based on their lived experience in their community and the way that, you know, that, uh, you know, they have, you know, been living in our, in our in our universe and there's no better or worse. And so that really shifts the paradigm just because we happen to have the power of the cultural in which we've created our health systems, when others enter it, that doesn't mean that we ultimately have to have cultural dominance over that. And so it's, not, it's more than just accommodating those other cultures. It's really recognizing that those other cultures are equal to ours. And perhaps we have something to learn from them. Um, and so that extra sensitivity is a difference of recognizing and sort of downsizing who we are and uplifting who others are and recognizing that we're all equal, that we're all equal. So I'm going to ask again, uh, my guests. Um, uh, so, Charles, can you think of some examples from your practice where cultural awareness or cultural sensitivity has affected you and your patients in practice? Well, Monica, thank you very much. Uh, that's a great explanation. I really appreciate your moderation and, and moving us along here. So, so these are really important subjects and also uh, challenging subjects. And I think I've got a, a pretty extreme case that that it could be uh, challenging uh, to the concept of cultural sensitivity. It was a patient I'd seen only a few times, um, but I, I did know him a little bit. And one day um, I was in charge of our minor OR and he came in with a uh, back mass, a suspected abscess. So we're going to take a look at it. Um, and I realized that uh, I'd, I'd probably never examined him fully. He came in for shoulder pain and elevated blood pressure. And I probably listened to his lungs, but snake my, seeing my stethoscope down in his shirt. Because when we got him back in minor OR suite for uh, looking at his, uh, his back mass, uh, he took off his shirt and over his back, just a huge swastika. And I remember I just went cold and I went completely numb and I didn't know what to do. Um, and it took it, and that, and that, but that lasted seconds. And then it was just breathe, you know, we're still in a situation, patient with a back mass, let's do an exam, be respectful. But yeah, my whole perspective changed in a matter of a second. Um, because it was like almost like an unveiling. It was just so dramatic. Um, and I'd never seen that before. And, and you know, so it really took me to, you know, to take a moment and reach an extra gear so I could provide professional care, because that is, that is my job, you know, even though I, you know, just based on that very large ta tattoo, um, yeah. you know, I'm not going to value, you know, that, that culture. I, I you know, it's, it's something I, I just am diametrically opposed to. And yet, yet we have to go on. And he actually continued to be my patient for another year after that. Now, that's so fascinating. How do you think it was that he came to seek care 
by you and your clinical practice, which is so sort of ethnically diverse. Right. Oh, I'm sure that was very challenging for him. But um, as one of the largest providers of safety net care in the county, there's not a lot of choices for folks who don't have a lot of other places to go. Mm. And it, the, but the surprising thing was he did come back. He did develop continuity. Um, mm -hmm. He kept continuity with me even after I had alerted Child Protective Services about uh, potential mistreatment for his child. Um, and so and he still continued to see me. So mm -hmm. it, was, it was really kind of a, a strange, remarkable journey, but it was a test. Uh, it was mm -hmm. a test to kind of see, like, for both of us, you know, how far can we go to meet uh, closer? Because, you know, in terms of worldview and our perspectives on on what health was and society, yeah, I'm sure they're they're very, very different. Um, but we had to, to try to come to um, meeting in the middle because because, well, that's 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 my job. Right? Goodness, I did not see that story coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was it was trying. Like I said, it's over. It's very dramatic. And, I, you know, that that's not something that happens, but it will happen. And I mean, we yeah. certainly have seen a uh, rise in cases of explicit racism or yeah, sexism absolutely. or ageism and other isms um, from patients transferred to our healthcare team over the past several years. So that's been well. Absolutely. Absolutely. What happens in the world shows up in our clinical practice. And yeah. um, certainly we'll be seeing more of that. Um, as the proud boys need care. Um, so, uh, Monica, do you have any examples of um, cultural awareness or sensitivity in practice that you want to share? Absolutely. I do also just want to thank um, Charles for sharing that story. I think that it often is unclear to people who are not in the health professions how daunting and exhausting these episodes can be for us. How I'm sure Charles, the next time you saw him, his name come up on your um, clinical schedule, you had to mentally prepare before you walked in the oh, room sure. and take care of your biases and take care of your feelings and take care of yourself. Yes. And then after you saw him again, you know, just kind of resettle yourself before you see the next patient. And I think we need to speak openly about biases coming from patients to mm -hmm. prepare our trainees, our staff, um, to be able to deal with all, you know, what's coming and what has come for many of us for a long period of time um, and still deliver the best care possible. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I'm going to tell you a story about an older Chinese woman who came into my practice with knee pain. And when I had her disrobe, she had a perfect rectangle of a rash over her right knee. And so my immediate thought was, oh, this is like a contact dermatitis. And I said, tell me about your knee. And she told me how she had been having some arthritic symptoms. And I said, and what did you put on the knee? And she said, nothing. And I said, really? You, you haven't had anything that was it maybe the shape of a rectangle on your knee? And she kept saying no and no. And I said, okay, because this looks like your skin is reacting to something. Um, and, you know, we all um, have things that we use in our homes and maybe that our parents taught us to use. And I kept hinting and hinting. And um, finally, um, she said, okay, she had been applying something um, from a Chinese herbalist over her knee. Um, and um, I had a resident with me. And when we exited the room, um, the resident thought, well, you know, people need to stop using these non-regulated um, herbs and other medications, other drugs, because they're just going to keep getting into trouble. And I pulled this person aside and I said, you know, my father actually um, practiced um, quite a bit with herbs. And when my baby was born with severe um, acne, infant acne, mm -hmm. he told me to boil some cabbage water and apply the cabbage water to his face several times a day gently. And I thought, to, I literally thought to myself, I can't do that because then when I bring the baby in to see my doctor, I'll have to explain that I ate 
a physician who has practiced Western medicine has been applying cabbage water to my child's face. But my child won out and I applied cabbage water and the acne went away in record time. And so I was telling this to the resident to say, you know, we need to be more open in Western medicine to everything else that is happening around us and recognize that we don't know everything and um, that sometimes there are side effects to the very medications that we prescribe and we don't do away with them. Um, We continue to use them and be aware of the side effects. And if this has been helping her and helping her arthritis and not hurting anything else, there's probably something really good about it. And so we should not walk back in the room and say, never do this again. We should walk back in the room and say, this is probably a side effect of what you used. We can help you with it. Um, Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about how you've been using this other product right? Because otherwise we will lose her and we will also lose ourselves by closing ourselves off to everything else that is beautiful in the world and different. The thing is, is that most medicines have come from some plant etiology. Like we know about digoxin and certain kinds of things, but you know, in Famously, you know, oncology and cancer drugs came from, you know, plants that we knew about. And so just because we may not have tested everything (laughs) that some of the herbalists have been using for centuries or generations doesn't mean that that there's not a learned experience in their effectiveness within those communities. It's just sort of exactly what you're saying. And so um, I think that it's easy for um, people who have been trained in one way to completely, you know, ignore the potential um, lessons, lived experience and efficacy of different kinds of medicine, um, particularly when they're coming from, communities that have been socially marginalized um, and ostracized. So, um, so thank you for your stories. This is great. I I love all the the sharing (laughs) and and learning um, that I'm getting just from your personal stories. So this sort of leads to the next part of the discussion, which is um, talking about avoiding humiliating uh, healthcare. And your stories so far have all talked about ways in which we can provide excellent care and some of the things that you're doing is paving the way to avoid those experiences. Um, One of the key things once patients get into our room, once they've figured out, you know, um, how to get the directions around parking and perhaps have had a, you know, whatever experience at the front desk and have been roomed by the medical assistants. I mean, people have multiple encounters before they make their way to see us. And those encounters all shape the kind of mood they're in, the mindset they're in, how ready they are to receive um, the the encounter that they're going to have with their healthcare provider. But once they get there, we have an agenda to discuss. I have my list and they likely have their list. Sometimes those lists align, um, but sometimes they're very different. And so one of the things that can happen is when those lists are very different, those agendas that are very different, there can be discord and patients can feel humiliated um, by that because they don't feel heard, they don't feel seen, they don't feel um, that patients, uh, they don't feel like their provider is giving them um, attention. And so... um, that is uh, something that is really, really important that we address um, both verbally and non-verbally. Um, and just like those non-verbal cues that um, patients are looking for, as soon as we open the door, do we greet them with a smile and a hug and look them in the eye and say, how are you doing? Or do we walk right past them, sit down, open up the computer and then turn to them and say, what brings you in today? You know. <laughs> They know what they're going to get from us based on one of those two scenarios. 
And, you know, and so the other is really, when we talk about aligning agendas, what we're talking about is basically shared decision-making. Are we going to share the power and how we're going to set the agenda, what we're going to talk about, um, or are we going to just stick with our agenda and not really listen to the patient's concerns or what is on their list? And sometimes, you know, <laughs> they have a list of 70 things. You're like, can't get to all that today. Um, but, but let's figure out what's most important on your list. Um, and so all of this is really an important part. There's so many ways um, of delivering care that is um, culturally uh that is full of cultural humility, but making sure that we address patients' concerns and that our agendas are as aligned as possible is an important part of that um, because patients' experiences um, are rooted in their own sense of rationality, knowledge, their experience. Just like we're an expert in being doctors, they're an expert in a being their own patient. They know their own bodies. They know which medications they're taking. They know the feelings they're having and the symptoms. They know what's top of mind as far as pressing concerns for them and their family. And if we discard those concerns to make sure that we're talking about, oh my gosh, you're 10 years overdue for your colonoscopy. This must be addressed today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then we've lost the opportunity to hear something that is very pressing to them. And so making sure that we explore what that agenda is um, and just just take a peek and see what's on that list. Um, we may be surprised at some of the very important things that are on that list. Um, and we can always, and that's the beauty of um, being a primary care physician, we have years to get through that list, right? We can prioritize that list and eventually we will hit everything on that list um, and validating how they feel. Um, and their emotions about that, even things that might feel minor, you know, oh, my gosh, I thought I was having a heart attack. I'm so glad to hear it's just acid reflux, you know. <laughs> um, but, yes, it is scary having these feelings. Chest pain is very uncomfortable. I can see why you were so concerned. I'm so glad you brought that up. But really, it's just your heartburn. You know, now we both feel comforted you know, and comfortable, and we can move on to something else. Um, and so we have aligned our agenda, you know, and that's an important part of avoiding the patient feeling um, like they've been humiliated as part of that care process. Monica, do you have anything about avoiding humiliating healthcare or how we can improve our practice that you want to share with the audience today? I will give you what for me has always been a disturbing example of um, really not sharing um, power with a patient. Um, so uh, many years ago, admitted a um, very tall um, man who clearly with a lot of bravado had been sitting at home, short of breath, refusing to come into the hospital until his wife dragged him in. Um, and it was very clear to us that he was in severe heart failure, that he had um, been feeling very unwell for a long period of time. And as we learned, um, he did not like feeling unwell. He was a construction worker. He liked feeling strong. He liked building things. He liked getting things done. And we explained to him that, um, you know, he was just a, a hair's distance of being placed into the intensive care unit. We were going to keep him on the wards near the nursing, um, uh, near the nurses and make sure that he was monitored closely overnight as we diuresed him. Um, and we explained to him that he would be urinating all night as we pulled this fluid off of him and then we left for the night. I came in the following morning to round on him and found that he was in tears. This, you know, man had been posied and um, had placed a catheter, had a, had a catheter placed overnight. And he explained to me in tears that some men had come in and held him down while all of this was done by a nurse and he could not have been more humiliated. 
I stepped out of the room and found the nursing staff and asked what happened overnight. And they explained that um, he was getting up frequently to urinate. His blood pressure had begun to drop. They were terrified that he was going to fall and break a hip or hurt his head or hurt something. And so they asked him repeatedly to use the bedside commode. Um, and yet they kept finding him in the restroom um, because his EKG monitors kept popping off. And so, you know, I stood there aghast and thought to myself, this is not so complicated. Why didn't we think of bringing a urinal to the bedside um, so that he didn't actually have to use the bedside commode, which he did not want to use because he found it humiliating. Mm -hmm. and he wanted to get up on his own and get to that bathroom. Mm -hmm. Why did it have to come to this? And each, both the patient and the nursing staff had reasons, right? The nursing staff had safety and quality first on their list. They were following the protocol that had been laid out for them, and they felt they were doing the right thing for the patient. The patient, however, because of those very stringent protocols and because no one understood his perspective and his culture um, really was humiliated mm -hmm. um, and um, asked me to please undo everything before his daughter showed up, mm -hmm. before his wife showed up mm -hmm. and saw him like that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, you know, just so many different ways that we, that we use our dominance, that we use the dominant culture, that we use um, our protocols to establish that power when maybe we can have a conversation and um, give and take a little bit mm -hmm. and do what's best for the individual, um, make them aware what our concerns are and still find a way to make everybody comfortable. Absolutely. Right. Um, so that's, that's one example that, that uh, I think stands out in my um, practice as one where I was unable to avoid the humiliation of a patient. Yeah, I find that when I'm working in the hospital, um, my primary role is that of like cultural broker in those situations um, between hospital protocol and nursing issues um, and what the patient and family need and finding that space in between where everyone is comfortable and okay with the plan before it escalates to something that actually is worse for patient care. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think um, taking a step back and thinking, how can I share my power is, is always a really important and fundamental strategy. Yeah. What am I holding? What narrative am I carrying out? And how can I share it? Exactly. And how can I make it somebody else's narrative that will serve them better? Absolutely. You always remember the tough cases and the ones where they're, they're seared in your memory. You could probably go back there in a second. You can put yourself right back in that position. You know exactly how you felt and you never forget those. And, and we use those to fuel good care. And, but it's not that hard to share power. It's, it's respecting other people's agendas is part of the great joys of my practice. And we really want our care to, you know, not just be not demeaning. Uh, not insulting, uh, but actually <laughs> celebrative and uplifting. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, um, I do a lot of uh, care of uh, older individuals with multiple chronic illnesses. I think like both of you do as well. And every every progression we make in treating diabetes and treating osteoarthritis just gets them closer to their real goals. So, yeah, we're there to treat your diabetes and osteoarthritis and your headache and your depression and everything else. But that what that really does is gets you closer to your grandkids or your great grandkids so you can play with them. It gets you closer to that trip to where you grew up so you can see relatives or friends you haven't seen in over a decade. And that's the stuff that really matters. And I think having, you know, now some perspective of being in the same place over time, a, a couple decades plus, um, yeah, I, I really see that play out and I see the power in it. I see the power in it um, for, for patients, of course, primarily, and they're, and they're the people they care about, and that's most important. But it actually is really satisfying to me as well. And I think it's a good burnout preventer. And it's a way that, you know, I feel satisfied and engaged every day moving forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
um, when you practice for so long, those patients become your family, you know. So preserving dignity um, and avoiding humiliating your patients <laughs> are some ways that we can certainly improve integrating cultural humility into practice and improving the patient experiences and outcomes. And there are many other strategies that can be taken. Um, and so we've talked a bit about some of them as far as cultural awareness and sensitivity and the cultural humility. Some of the things that we haven't specifically spoken on include things like uh, staff diversity and language concordance, even though you know, they've been part of our conversations. Um, Monica, do any of the strategies um, that are in this slide stand out to you? Um, and what have you experienced in practice that you may want to talk a bit about? Yeah, I think um, for me in, in particular, the language concordance always strikes uh, a big note. Um, having um, grown up um, not understanding English for a large part of my childhood and then gaining the language um, over time was um, was an important experience. It taught me how you can learn and how you can accommodate and assimilate and um, and really also then turn around and help others. Mm -hmm. And I think that very often I see individuals in the healthcare setting, whether they are students or trainees or nurses, um, and physicians attempting to use whatever language skills they have to try to help, right? But often um, we need to be reminded that um, in particular Spanish, I think people think of as an easy language because it, it sounds often like English. Mm -hmm. Just we, add an O. <laughs> yes, just add, add the A or <laughs> add the O. Um, we can um, really do harm. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of words, um, a lot of Spanglish words, a lot of words that do sound an awful lot alike, like English words that we are often using incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So um, if I if I have a patient who comes in and says that that they're they are constipada, right? Um, any medical student or trainee or you know, anyone would come in and probably say to me, the patient is constipated, right? And I would want to know exactly what word they used because actually the Spanish word constipated means that they're experiencing nasal congestion. So you can imagine that the, the, the confusion that would ensue if I walked in and started talking about constipation in Spanish to my patients, right? right? There are also more serious examples where there can be significant harm um, to patients. And we know the literature demonstrates that people who don't receive language concordant care um, are harmed every day in our hospitals. And mm -hmm. so it takes um, us as providers, all of us, nurses, um, respiratory therapists, more time mm -hmm. to deliver care to someone who is not proficient in, in English. Um, and we have to be okay with that. We have to say to ourselves and to the system, if we want to deliver equitable care, if we want to do the right thing, then we need to employ language services in this setting, and we need to be prepared for this to take a little bit longer, because every patient has their needs as individuals. Um, we try to provide and recognize that every patient is different and we may need to use the resources that we have at hand um, in, in variable ways, right? And so I think realizing that that's okay, that we're not going for equal, we're going for equitable, mm -hmm. is a process that we have to reflect on an awful lot. Because our initial, I think, reaction, especially as Americans, is this needs to be equal. I cannot pay more attention to you than to someone else. I can't spend more time with you. I can't employ extra resources with you. But actually, what we're really driving for is equitable care and the best possible outcomes for every individual. And that takes a lot of reflection, mm -hmm. right? It takes a deeper understanding of racism, of discrimination, of um, of reaching for equitable care. Thank you. I remember one time you used the term um, 
as opposed to saying that people have low English literacy. What is the term that you use? Um, so the official term is limited English proficiency. Mm -hmm. And we are trying really hard to move away from that term. Because when we hear that term, limited English proficiency, it means that the patient is somehow deficient. Right. Right. And actually, they're not deficient. We're deficient. Right. right. <laughs> we don't speak that language. We're not able to you know, provide care in every way possible use, utilizing that language. What the patient is, is language diverse. That's right. That's right. right. They're bringing something to the table that's different than what we can bring, and mm -hmm. that needs to be respected, too. Absolutely. Getting back to the idea that, you know, everyone um, is equal in their own space yeah. and um, respecting that difference. Absolutely. Always learning. Always learning from you, Dr. Vela. I wholeheartedly agree language is so important and so much that we do. Uh, so I, I certainly use medical interpreters uh, because I wish I could speak 13 languages. I do not. Um, uh, but, but I, you know, yeah, someday. Um, but but the, the, that window is closing. Um, but I, I'd say that there's so much we can do um, in our nonverbal communication um, in that, you know, just active listening for most cultures, eye contact, um, you know, maybe a hand on the shoulder or a hand on the hand can go a long way. And just knowing a few phrases, uh, you know, goodbye, hello, thank you, uh, you know, th that that can go a long way too. Just to show that you're you're reaching Fine. out. And if nothing else, it, it might be amusing for the patient to hear you uh, try to say <laughs> things in their, in their native language. But they, I think that generally folks give you credit for trying, and it doesn't That's take right. that much effort. And again, it makes that bond a little bit closer especially with, I think, with the use of interpreters, especially online interpreters, we can feel a little bit like we're moving. It, just, it doesn't feel quite as close as when you're having a, um, a fully engaged conversation one-to-one. -one. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think it's, it's a way that you can bridge that gap and do so because these patients really need that uh, gap bridge, as, as uh, Monica V said, they, you know, that, that equity, that's, that's where that equity lies, is you, you reaching out and extending yourself a little bit. Um, you'll find great things that happen. Thank you for that extra tip, those tips for people. Um, I do that for patients who are English proficient, um, just to show that little extra kindness and love, but certainly for patients who um, are, are already missing something in the encounter because they don't have that sort of back and forth, you know, because, uh, because of the language or other sort of um, things that may be missing from the encounter, those those extra caring touches. And I, and I do for patients who I don't speak their language, I um, have these little cards that say, you know, you know, hello, goodbye, or, you know, whatever, um, phonetically spelled. And I try and memorize it. And if not, I'll look at the card and, and write. <laughs> Frequently, they'll get a, you know, a laugh and a hug because they they know that I'm trying, mm -hmm. and that's the most important part. They see that I'm trying to step into their space. Yeah. Great. So thank you <laughs> for all of these important vignettes um, that I'm hoping people can learn from. These stories are so powerful in painting a picture on how we can do our best as clinicians to do better by our patients. So now we're gonna move on um, to our second learning objective, all this, we've only done one, um, which is to adopt self-evaluation, self-reflection, and cultural awareness practices to improve ourselves so we can be better at interacting with patients, caregivers, and the care team. And so to assist the audience more, I'm going to discuss some actionable steps that providers can take to incorporate, to incorporate cultural awareness and sensitivity into practice. And so there's... Uh, we, we've had this shift from thinking about cultural competency as though we can somehow become competent in every culture that exists other than the one that we live ourselves into this, these constructs of cultural humility, which, again, I said was a combination of cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity. So now there's this coin term, which I'm not, you know, I have mixed feelings about because it just doesn't roll off the tongue. I'm not even sure if I can say it now, um, but it's, um, so it's, so it's a mixture of competence and humility. So, competimility, 
Um, with the timidity part being the remember it's a combination of the cultural awareness and sensitivity so it's sort of just reminding us that we have all these different aspects that we're trying to juggle at the same time but just basically saying you know do your best to try and be aware and respectful and know that where you're sitting is just one seat at the table and all those other seats are equally important as well um, and so that that's what compatibility <laughs> can mean to me and you. Um, and so, Monica, I'm going to leave with you. Um, and can you give us any examples on how you might have practiced compatibility? Absolutely. So I, I was joking earlier that I like to be 15 minutes earlier everywhere. And now it's, it's a big fault of mine. Um, it drives other people crazy. Um, but it was something that my mother instilled in us. You know, you have to be early everywhere you go because people are expecting you to be late. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so I recall when I was a young mother and very, very busy and always rushing through clinic because I knew I wanted to get out in time to be able to pick up my kids from school. This was a big objective of mine was picking them up from school. And so when patients showed up late, it often felt like a personal affront. Mm-hmm. And I know that I would get feel a little heated before I even came in the room. And I would have, you know, random thoughts like, oh, I bet you're not late for your hairdresser, right? Why are you late to see me? Um, until... One day I came into the room and there was a patient with her three children and she was, she had completely missed her appointment, but she had darn it come in and she had come in with her newborn and her two-year-old and her five-year-old and I recognized her in me mm-hmm. and I recognized myself in her and I said, wow, it must have been so hard to get here. And she she broke into tears and she said, I had to take two buses and nobody helped me with this baby carriage. And, you know, I can't believe how, you know, people just don't respond to each other anymore. And I wanted to cry too and say, yes. (laughs) But I realized then that I needed to ask my patients, what did it take for you to get here today? when they came in late. And I learned so much from that practice. Mm-hmm. And it's one that I now teach my residents because I think that when a patient is able to make it to a clinic appointment, regardless of whether they're on time or late, it has taken significant effort. We did not make it easy. No, we, we have a whole life outside of trying to make it to a clinic appointment to be on time for us. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think it's a really useful thing to ask. You know, we ask, who do you live with? How many stairs do you have to come up and down to exit and enter your building? Who's there if you feel ill? What, you know, who or what are you going home to? But we never ask, what are your transportation issues and how, you know, how hard was it for you to get here? You know, I feel like every person who makes it to clinic should be greeted with like confetti and like <laughs> we're you, so happy you made it <laughs> like, like they're at the end of a marathon <laughs> you right. know like you That's did right. it you got here because it can be a real challenge for some people um and to think that after all that that lady with her three babies and two buses and if you had not seen her, you know, how deflating that would have been. And how the trust would have been broken, right? Yes. Because look right. at what she has to do to get to see me. Yes. Right. And so for me to have disrespected her time mm-hmm. would have been awful. And so she gave me a wonderful gift in that lesson. Absolutely. Absolutely. Charles, anything that you want to add before we move on? Uh, no, that's that's just a, a great, a great anecdote. And yeah, definitely, uh, I think probably rings true for a lot of us in clinical care. Um, I'm just going to harken back to the uh, the concept of finding, helping patients find their own path and, and their own voice. 
And I find that that can be actually uh, more challenging in when in working with folks who have traditionally experienced maybe not one, but several different forms of discrimination because they're not used to having their voice heard. Um, so it's something we I try to coax out of them. And again, that's the value of continuity of care that maybe we get. You know, there's definitely patients where I, I, I know we didn't get there. We didn't make that connection on visit one. Visit two, starting to see something there. But by visit three, now we're clicking. We could talk more about their lives or opening up to more to me about what they really want um, out of not just their lives and, you know, their aspirations, but also the health care um, that I'm about to provide, that I'm providing them and the, and the relationship we have. And I think that's where you find a richness. So if at first you feel like, gosh, we're not really getting there yet. And well, I'm just going to give up and go back to my old ways of just prescriptive practice and just telling you what to do. Um, don't go there quite yet. You know, give, give it some time, give it a little bit of space and many times uh, something will flourish. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think about shared decision-making as um the patient on one side of the door and the physician on the other side. Um, and some patients bust through the door, <laughs> you know, with their ideas and their wants and their needs. And we know who, who those patients are. Um, <laughs> and some patients will just quietly sit on the other side of the door trying to hear our advice, right? Um, we have to open that door and invite people in. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we have to say, no, really, really, come on in, have a seat this is your seat. <laughs> you know, right. I really want your ideas. It's your body. Like no one else is living in it but you. And so I can't help you be the best, best person um, and help give you the best advice if I don't know what, you know, what's important to you. So sometimes we have to invite them in over and over and over because they're used to standing on the other side of the door being uninvited. And so thank you for, for bringing that point. So, um, so in this uh, session of talking about self-reflection and self-evaluation, again, language is important. Um, so we're going to talk, uh, so self-reflection, I'm going to define that. Self-reflection involves looking inward, reflecting inward, um, and learning and identifying your own biases, behaviors, actions, and values. Where self-evaluation is a more structured process. So it's not just looking but evaluating what you're looking at, using tools to assess your performance and to assist in identifying the problem areas, areas that you can uh, need to work on and get a little better. Again, every one of us is a continual QI project. Um, and so thinking about what do I see that's going on here and then what can I do to make myself better as a physician to help my patients? Um, and so thinking about um, times in practice where self-reflection and or self-evaluation has been helpful. So one of the ways that we can think about incorporating self-reflection and self-evaluation is uh, using the THINK model. Um, it's one of the tools that we have for healthcare professionals. Um, and what this does, it just provides a structured way for us thinking about our own biases and experiences. Um, it helped. It's a sort of a five-step process where we observe and question and divine, um, define and engage with a problem, and then sort of uh, like a PDSA cycle, sort of think and reflect, um, and then uh, sort of it takes us through a process of investigation, making connections, doing sort of mini analyses, and so it's really a good tool for us using in practice in real time um, to help us learn better about how we are, and then watch and monitor for our own improvement. So that's a great resource for us when we're considering implementing cultural humility strategies um, and trying them out and then see how we do. Um, so that's one tool that we have. And so now that we've identified a way that providers can evaluate strategies um, that they implement in practice, we're gonna move on to learning objective three, which is to integrate actionable strategies continually into practice to promote positive change and enhance delivery of care and patient interactions. So we just established with the THINK model that cultural humility or compatibility <laughs> is a lifelong learning process. We're all, again, a continuous QI project. That In this uh, cultural compatibility continuum, uh, we think about it as a, as a continuum that we move through. And so in the continuum, cultural destructiveness 
is the point that we want to move away from. And at this point um, in, in the stage, cult, uh, continuum culture is being actively destroyed through policies, practices, racism, discrimination, all the bad things, the explicit uh, bias. But we move through these phases through, and we could think about this as stages of change. So we think about like the pre-contemplation, contemplation, activation. This is a very similar uh, continuum. So we have cultural incapacity um, where there's systemic racism being practiced, but really no one's really doing anything about it. Um, in the next stage, there's cultural blindness Providers may be saying that they believe in equity, but rather than uh, valuing diversity where everyone uh, is uniquely um, different and valued for their differences, we're encouraging cultural assimilation into the, the primary culture. The next phase is pre-competimility, where they start to recognize problems, taking steps to improve cultural humility, starting to engage tools like the think um, and using QI models like PDSA to think about how this may work in clinical practice. And then we finally get to cultural compatibility where providers are embracing cultural differences, practicing cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity, open to new ideas of self-reflection and self-evaluation, regularly using tools like the THINK model. Um, and then we finally get to the stage of cultural proficiency. And this is not to say that we are culturally competent in all the different cultures, but we're comfortable with some of the skills and the strategies. We feel open um, to engaging our patients um, with, the, with the idea of being um, seeing people in their full humanity, recognizing that other cultural cultures are equal to ours. And how can we accommodate patients in real time to meet their goals? and ours to have that sort of alignment, not just in a single agenda of a clinic visit, but sort of throughout the continuum of their care practice. And so it really involves system levels promotion of multicultural education and of cultural compatibility. So um, it's not to minimize the sort of personal um, involvement between patients and providers, but it's to also elevate the level of structural uh, competence that is needed um, from healthcare systems to really make this thing work. Um, so it is not just providers that are needed, but there's uh, changes in healthcare structures and systems that are needed in order for patients to really feel at home um, and safe, emotionally safe, um, sometimes physically safe when they enter into healthcare systems. And so we, and when we engage in lifelong learning and adopt these practices of cultural compatibility into practice, we'll start to address these power imbalances that exist between patients and providers, particularly patients who have discordant social identities um, from many of the, uh, the people who are in positions of power in healthcare systems, and that we can truly promote diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And so with that, um, Charles and Monica, I want to give uh, the audience one more example. It's like a mega example of a tool that, that, that can be utilized in practice to integrate cultural humility into our practice. This uh, figure is like the mothership. <laughs> Each little uh, spoke on this wheel um, is a tool in and of itself. So it's got PDSA, which which just reflects all the different kind of QI methods you could use. It's got the IAT, which is, you know, measuring your own implicit biases. It's got so, so many different tools that you could sort of each one, you know, Google and look up and they're available actually on our website. And we've done um, sessions where we um, have pulled in so many of these different tools um, already. We're going to zoom into just one of these, and that's LEARN. Um, and so, Charles, I'm going to ask you to uh, specifically do the handoff and talk about the LEARN model and how to apply that into practice. Right. Yeah, I agree. There's there's a lot of different tools. So if you have successful tools that you're using, it doesn't mean like that we're prescription. This has to be this has to be the set used. But it's nice to have a toolbox. 
um, especially as culture continues to evolve and we continue to evolve with it as as healthcare professionals in the healthcare system. But I like learn. It, it's fairly simple. It's very pragmatic. I tend to stay very pragmatic as a as a family doctor. So it starts with just listening to the patient. L, listen. Um, then you're going to explain your perspective. The patient is there to hear your perspective. So it is a uh, you know as uh, Monica mentioned, you can have different agendas, and that's okay because the A is acknowledging those differences. Um, and then R, recommend. When we get to recommend, what I what I usually do is pause after the acknowledgement. You know, I see that, you, that you're thinking that you have X, Y, Z, and you're wanting A, B, C, you know, well, and that's great, and I totally see A, B, C, but there's also D, E, F, and we should think about those too. Stop. Just hold for a second, let the patient interject there, because maybe they'll come up with the recommendation. The patient, the management plan the patient recommends is going to be, I think, inherently more valuable to them because they generate it and it's more likely to be adhered to and, and start to move us uh, further down in terms of making progress on their health journey. And then and finally, there is a negotiation. Well, but, you know, that, that C is still a little bit, you know, maybe a, a little bit down the line. And so maybe let's just try D for now. Would you think that's reasonable? We'll still do, um, you know, ENF like you mentioned earlier. And so go go from that. And I think I mixed up my letters, um, but hopefully the learn model gives you an idea. It's it's a fairly straightforward framework because it starts with patience and it ends with negotiation and involves that shared decision making model. Thank you so much for that um, overview of the learn model, and we really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much for being here with us. No, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, um, Monica, do you have any examples from your practice that you'd like to share? I do, I, and I get picked on a little bit for this, but um, I actually have very long clinic notes, and they're not long because I copy in, you know, last week's labs and the last CAT scan result and the last MRI result. They're long because I like to include in the note what it was that the patient and I spoke about and how we negotiated the current plan mm -hmm. and what it was that was a touch point. Right. If I'm speaking to a patient about smoking cessation and they tell me that they want to quit because they just had a baby, then I put that into the clinic note. And I put it in because just as you have taught us, Monica, in your research that um, we can introduce bias into the clinic note, I think that this is a way of reducing bias. When mm -hmm. another provider reads, wow, this patient really wants to quit smoking because they have a newborn in the house. This is something admirable, and this is something I'm going to support and congratulate them on. And so I try to include that kind of language in my clinic note, and that's part of the LEARN model that Charles just reviewed with us, but it also means that that sensibility, that humility, that respect for the patient might have the opportunity of being transmitted to the reader of the clinic note when I'm not present. Right. So instead of uh, what we know happens is there's a lot of negative descriptors, a lot of negative bias that's in the clinic note, um, you're adding a lot of positive uh, things to sort of buffer that. So right. when people are reading that, they're getting some additional information about the patient's context, um, about the patient's lives and who they are to help everyone sees their full humanity. I like to use that phrase um, because a lot of people are dehumanized um, in our healthcare system. And so to help um, sort of balance out the scale so that we see them as they really are um, is what you're doing with your clinic notes. So it takes more time. God bless you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how my administrator feels about it. But <laughs> well, I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. So just another wonderful story. Um, we have reached the end of our time. Um, unfortunately, I just knew this was going to be an amazing session, and it absolutely was. I'm going to try and summarize our discussion, how there's no way to sort of fully wrap my hands around all the things that I've learned. Um, but to summarize our sort of key SMART goals, and SMART goals are ones that are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. And that's what I hope that we'll take away from this presentation and apply to our practices, all of us. Um, first, to explore how cultural humility affects patient outcomes, including their experience. Uh, second, to incorporate cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity into practice. To in integrate self-reflection and self-evaluation into practice as well. How can we be better individuals? 
Um, and then to integrate continual learning to improve uh, cultural humility and practice as well. I would just like to note that this CMEO webcast is one of a four-part CME CE initiative, and we hope that you'll take advantage of and participate in all of the activities of the series. The other topics that we'll be covering include creating an inclusive environment while improving health equity, trauma and gender-informed care, and vaccine equity. Each of these areas have unique issues to discuss and address, so please join us for the entire initiative. The CMEO DNI Hub also has a number of resources available to you to further help your education on diversity, equity, and inclusivity. So Charles and Monica, thank you again for joining us today for such a robust conversation. I love spending time with the both of you. It is really such an honor. Always a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> To receive credit for this activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation. We appreciate your feedback. We really do want to hear from you. We want you to tell us what you liked, which I'm sure today was all the personal stories that you learned, um, and how we can improve, what additional topics you would want uh, for us to address. And I want to sincerely thank you, our audience, for your commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusivity education, because together all together, we can strive to provide the best and most equitable care to all of our patients, particularly those who are underserved. Have a wonderful day.